This should get way easier once we're local, you know? Yeah, yeah, in the same room. Back to like two millisecond ping. Oh, that short, short ping. Mm-hmm. We're on that Hawaii ping right now. <laughs> that island time ping. That's what I like to say. <laughs> that island ping. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's hurry up and get this done so you can get back to soaking up them rays. Oh, man, it's so nice out. I fucking love Hawaii. All right. Welcome to episode 332 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Black. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, we reached our patron goal of 128 and merch gonna happen. Merch gonna happen. Uh, we've actually exceeded our goal by quite a bit. This week we hit 132 patrons. Oh yeah. And that happened before the end of January, right? So we hit our milestone. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we hit it on the 29th. Damn, two days ahead of schedule. Mm-hmm. So thank you, everybody. Merch is coming. Uh, we got to figure out what kind of merch we're going to make. Do you have any intuitions on what we should do first? Uh, I think uh, a torso covering of some kind. <laughs> a torso covering device made of some type of material with sleeve length to be determined <laughs> yeah okay uh, yeah arms arms at least partially covered torso <laughs> fully covered uh neck to waist i'm guessing so we've we've excluded belly shirts and tank tops <laughs> yeah okay. you could i mean you can always just convert like you know we'll give you more material than you need to, you can always turn it into a tank top or a belly shirt well, who are we to stop you yeah yeah that's true you, yeah you can always take away all right. Well, let's take this moment to go ahead and shout out all the new folks who supported the show this week. So, huge thank you to Katie Presley, Jan Fructal, Ying Yao, Ruby Chen, Kevin Haig. Hog. I'm going to go with Kevin Haig. That's my guess. Austin Robinson, Scott Foltz, Elise Alex. Uh, fun fact: Elise is on my team at GitHub. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, okay. what's up, Elise? Yo. Uh, Danielle Shepard, Mike. Jongblot, Jongblot, some one of those. Mike, my man, Joseph Flynn, and Priscilla. Then, thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. You know what is very interesting, Marshall? Uh huh. What? So we had the goal of 128 patrons for merch, mm-hmm. and then we said our next goal was 256. Yeah. And our our reward for hitting 256 was that we were going to start releasing super secret monthly bonus episodes for supporters only. <laughs> but we've already done that yeah we did that so <laughs> we'll have to come up with a new goal for 256 patrons yeah so if if you don't know uh our patrons make this show possible they they help us offset the cost of producing the show uh but for just a dollar a month you get access to a private rss feed that has access to bonus land bonus land bonus, bonus land content bonus land. and uh sponsor free episodes so just a buck a month, go to patreon.com slash design details. We're also supported this week by Sisu. Sisu is looking for a thoughtful and data savvy designer to help them build the next generation of analytic software. You can find out more at sisu.ai. That's S-I-S-U dot A-I. We're also supported this week by Pathrise. Pathrise is an online mentorship program that helps you land a great UX job. Previous fellows have been placed at Google, IBM, Atlassian, and other exciting companies. You can learn more at pathrise.com slash details. Boom. Is that uh, slash details because it's details about this thing, or is it details because we're details, design details, which is it? I think both in this case. Okay, sure, Uh, yeah. It's a pretty good URL. Both and. 
Okay, Marshall, hit me with some follow-up. Yeah. Okay, so uh, one one real quick piece of follow-up. I've been meaning to mention this for a few weeks, and I keep forgetting to add it to the follow-up. But several weeks ago, I mentioned that I was, I think even before the Christmas break, I was working on a Solitaire app because the Solitaire apps that I've been using aren't up to snuff, or at least to my estimation. And one that was repeatedly recommended to me is an app called Solitaire, spelled weird, like A-E-R-E at the end instead of A-I-R-E. And it is, it's like 95% of what I want. Uh, so thank you to everybody who suggested that to me. It's, it's, it's become my home screen one that I use. It's my, it's my go-to now. Damn. But I still, I, I still think I'm going to probably build my own. <laughs> Just for that 5%. Yeah, 95% is not 100%, Brian. Oh my God. So that's quick, real quick follow-up, but uh, we need to get into some tweets, Brian. Uh, we'll try and keep this short, but one of the things I've noticed is in the past several weeks, we have gotten a huge influx of correspondence from listeners and people sending us DMs and replies and tweets and everything, and it is super cool to hear back from everyone. Thank you to everybody who's sending stuff in. Yeah, I feel like something happened in the last two weeks maybe three weeks where like we used to get tweets every week and people would DM us and stuff, but something happened where we're getting a lot more and it's hard to keep up with. And Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess I wanted to just call out like we're reading everything. Uh, We're not responding to everything, but we'll do our best, but we are reading everything. Mm -hmm. And we got a tweet this week from Kayla Brienne who mentioned uh, that they were listening to the show for the first time, trying to get some insights into our onboarding episode and said, I'm 11 minutes in and all I've heard is ads, information about the Patreon, and tweets from their subscribers. Come on, be better. And I think this is an interesting tweet that we both responded to where it's like, our follow-ups have gotten long. (laughs) And you and I know this. And part of the reason is because we read out loud the tweets that come at us this week and we shout out different things that have happened in the community. And I don't think that should stop. I think we should be conscious of how long this section is But I think that our reply to this tweet from Kayla, which is a totally valid tweet, was still probably accurate, which is we're marking this tweet section with a chapter from now on. So you can skip the tweets if you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we used to have all the tweets listed in follow up. Now we'll have follow up and tweets be distinct sections. But the reading the tweets feels important to me because it's the only way this show is a dialogue, right? Like Mm -hmm. if we just jump into the content, maybe yeah, it's more efficient. There's probably a lot of people who would appreciate that, but it means that the show is entirely one directional, and I don't know that that's as much fun. I think it is a good point that sometimes our our follow-ups do go a little long, this one probably included, uh, but we'll try and be better about marking everything with chapters for people who can just skip to the parts that they want to skip to. There you go. Yep. I do a lot of extra work to make sure that those chapters are are accurately timed and sufficiently labeled. And if you don't like something that we're talking about, skip to the parts you want to listen to and ignore the parts you don't want to listen to. Uh, We are not offended. That's totally fine. Cool. All right. So on that note, we do have a few uh, great tweets that came in this week. You want to hit the first one? Sure. Okay. So this first one is from Austin Robinson, a a recent patron whose name you just read. Uh, This is in response to, I shared a screenshot of what my editing program looks like after I've finished an episode and it is a chopped up mess. But 
it's all for y'all to make it sound good so that it's a, everything flows nicely and the jokes land a little bit better and uh-huh. <laughs> cut out all of my terrible ums and sidetracks and rabbit holes and everything that make an episode pretty unlistenable in its raw form. So, uh, so in response to that, Austin says, it baffles me that y'all edit as much as you do. It doesn't ever feel like y'all cut anything out. Everything sounds natural. I guess that means it's great editing. And I will take that compliment, Austin. Thank you. It is a lot of work, but uh, again, I think it's totally worth it. And I want to make sure that we're producing the best content that we can. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I know we edit for content sometimes, but I feel like primarily we're editing out dead air, ums, and like, in between sections where we're kind of figuring out if we wanted to frame a thing the way we framed it. Mm -hmm. So we're not editing out too much important stuff, I don't think. I think... No. You don't want to hear anything that gets edited out. Yeah, yeah. It's not like you're missing anything that would be more revealing of our thoughts uh, in most cases. I think occasionally we'll edit out like a rabbit hole where we get stuck or something like that. But for the most part, it's just ums and dead air and things that make the show flow a little bit tighter and don't distract from like the underlying points that we're trying to make or a guest is trying to make. Mm -hmm. And if there's something worth listening to that uh, is a, a tangent or a little sidebar, I'll typically cut those out and put them as a stinger at the end. So Yeah, yeah, right. You're not missing anything good. Don't worry. Well, so from the same tweet, you also got a reply from Andrew Mason. Andrew is the CEO of an app called Descript, which we've talked about on the show before. Mm -hmm. And Andrew said, you should try Descript. Let me know if you want to walk through. And Marshall, you've been poking at it. I've given it a try as well. We've both kind of, we've been circling around Descript. So what do you think? Are you going to use it? Yeah, I I need time to like really wrap my head around the way it does stuff around like file organization and how the automatic transcription stuff goes and editing because I want to make sure that I have enough time to get an episode out without, you know, fumbling through a new tool. But uh, it looks really cool. I There are a bunch of things in there like automatic um removal that would make my life way better, way easier. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Cool. Uh, well, kind of speaking of, of which, we also got another tweet from Michael McLeod uh, from that same screenshot of your editing workflow. And Michael says, I feel your pain and pride. Anyone who's been there can spot what an um even looks like. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's funny. Like the, the idea that you can see words or like see the flow of a conversation just from looking at the waveforms. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I can I can recognize an um, no problem. I, I replied with, I don't even see waveforms anymore. All I see is um, stutter, false start, which is a Matrix reference. <laughs> uh, we got another tweet, and uh, this is uh, in regards to our previous episode about the designer-developer handoff process. And this one comes from Yudi Chima. Sorry, Yudi, if I'm saying your name wrong. Uh, Udi. But he says, feel you on that anxiety that comes from a last minute implementation question that may have large ramifications. Glad it wasn't just me. And this is this is kind of a representative tweet that stands in for several tweets we got of people basically saying, oh, God, I feel so much better knowing that I'm not the only one who has this problem and that it's not something a shortcoming of my own. It's just a thing that happens. I think hearing when other people struggle with the same thing that you struggle with is just inherently relieving. Like there's something so deep about that. Like I'm not alone, right? Yep. It's not just me, especially for people working remote who might not, or not working on large teams. It's like, you can second guess a lot of these things. Like, oh man, I suck because I'm doing this thing that I don't see anybody else doing. But then you read on Twitter that, yeah, this is a common thing that a lot of people deal with, um, pros included, 
uh, all the way up and down the the sort of skill stack. Yeah, this is a, a thing that I think we all are susceptible to, which is comparing our insides to everyone else's outsides, right? Like mm-hmm. y- you only see what other people do, what their output is, and you don't know all the struggle that happens inside when that's happening. And so you only know of your own internal struggle. So it's nice to realize that other people have their own internal struggles too. Okay, last tweet. Uh, this one's just uh, kind of capping off the 128 Patreon milestones. We heard from Kevin Haig, who said, coming in hot as design details, patron number 128. Now give us that sweet merch. And then <laughs> we got some replies from uh, Ruby Chen, who says, hi, number 127 here. You are welcome. <laughs> yes, thank you. And from Jason June, I think is how we pronounce that, uh, who says, I was number 100, which is usually a pretty monumental number, but not for designers. Yeah. 100 is round, but not in the round that we want. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, either way, 100 still pretty cool. And, uh, you know, every single step on the road to 128 is a valuable step. Mm-hmm. So. Every pixel matters, Brian. Thank you, everybody. Ruby, Jason, Kevin, and everybody else. Okay. We got through a lot of tweets, and we got to follow up. Let's get into some meat. Yeah, nuts and bolts, Brian. Nuts and bolts. Here we go. I just want to preface this section by saying this was one of the... I feel like we kind of improvise a lot of episodes or like we'll we'll get into it and spend maybe 30 minutes of prep. Like, here's what we want to talk about. Here's how we're going to answer this question. I did like three hours this morning of just like research and notes. And what I'm most nervous about is that that won't be reflected well in having the conversation we're going to have. But... uh, I just want to let people know that. <laughs> Brian's trying real hard. If it doesn't sound I, I like it. I tried really hard for this episode. <laughs> uh, anyways. All right. You want to kick us off? Yeah. What are we talking about, Brian? We're, we're, we're talking about layout today. Uh, layout. And we're, no, not the layout podcast. A friend <laughs> of the pod, uh, Kevin and Rafa's show on the spec network. We're talking about like designing layouts. Mm-hmm. And, and how tools handle layout. So... Uh, We're going to split this up into two different parts. I'm going to talk about the uh, construction aspect of things, like making mocks, and Brian's going to talk about implementation and how our options differ based on the tools that are used. So here we go. There are a bunch of tools that handle layout, but because Sketch and Figma are two of the most common and we can't talk about everything, we're going to limit the discussion to just these two tools. But I think it's a pretty good cross-section of of what's available out there. And and I think it's interesting to compare and contrast the two solutions that these different companies have come up with. Okay, so let's start with Sketch Smart Layout. Let's talk about some pros first. So some of these pros and cons are going to be shared across Sketch and Figma, but I think where they differ is where it gets really interesting. So here's a pro. In Sketch, you can edit overrides in place. And when you do that, text that is laid out smartly, smart layouted, is <laughs> it has line wrapping. So it will continue to expand vertically as you add more lines in the text. And this makes creating lockups of more complicated sub-objects way more easy. So editable in place and it wraps lines. One of the big things that I've noticed with Sketch is that it respects your constraints. So all of the pinning and resizing logic that you've defined for your objects are maintained when you make something layoutable, when you give it smart layout, which means that all of your text fields are resizable and all of your 
Smart layouted symbols resize when any of the sub-objects are shown or hidden within those. You also have explicit control of the expansion direction uh, as part of the way that the layout works. So uh, I can choose whether it's going to expand up or down, left or right, depending on how that particular symbol needs to be laid out. It also removes anything within that symbol that is not eligible for being smart layouted. <laughs> we need better verbs for this, but... Um, <laughs> laid out. Laid out, there you go. Laid out smartly, intelligently. <laughs> and, and because of that, when you look in your layer list, there's just not a whole bunch of junk in there. So even if you can hide and show stuff, uh, it's only showing you the, the things that are currently visible, which is really nice. There's also... Uh, the, the last pro I would include in this list, and I'm sure I'm leaving some stuff out, but the last thing is that there is inferred padding and spacing. So like when I was talking about earlier that it respects the constraints logic that you've set up already for any given lockup, it will infer padding based on the distances objects are away from one another, which is really useful. Super, super useful because you can have uh, variable spacing between things that are in the same smart layout mm -hmm. group. Does that make sense, Brian? I think so. Words are hard. Words are really hard, especially when they refer to visual things. But yeah, th that's the list of the pros I came up with for Sketch Smart Layout. If you have anything you'd like to add to this list, just let us know, and we'll include it and follow up in a future episode. But that's the pros. So let's move on to cons. In Sketch, if you want to lay something out with Smart Layout, you have to make it a symbol, which is, I think, a, a pretty big limitation, or at least it's a it's an investment that isn't inherently necessary to the function. Does that make sense? Yeah, because not everything needs to be a symbol, right? Like, mm -hmm. then then you're sort of cluttering up what the concept of a symbol even is. Exactly, because in Sketch, when you create a symbol, it automatically, well, if you're like me, you have it automatically sent to a symbols page. And by making smart layout rely on the object being a symbol, it, it kind of muddies up your symbols page, which is unfortunate. Uh, another thing that's a negative about a smart layout is you can only hide sub-objects within a smart layout symbol if they themselves are symbols. So if you have an icon that isn't symbolized, you can't hide it and show it, there's no way to turn it on or off because it's not shown in that layer list because the layer list is simple, which was one of my pros. So yeah, there's, there's some pros and cons here, but some quick takeaways from Sketch Smart Layout are it's flexible, but it's a very manual implementation. So because you can do so much with all of the padding and have everything be unique, it's, it's very manual, but that means you can do a lot of really nice lockups that would otherwise be impossible. And I love that Smart Layout is a natural extension of the constraints logic that you're already familiar with, with pinning and resizing. So it's just a, a, an added functionality on top of that as opposed to a replacement for it. And because of all of this flexibility, you can use Sketch Smart Layout to pretty much create any sort of lockup, any use case that you have in mind, Sketch can handle it. So let's move on. Yeah, how does that compare to Figma? Let's... I'm curious because I, I haven't used Sketch in a long time, so I never got to use Smart Layout, but I am pretty familiar with Auto Layout. So yeah, dig into Figma for me. Yeah, so I, I was not as well-versed in Auto Layout up until recently, so I did not feel comfortable. We've had this idea for this episode for a little while, but I didn't 
feel comfortable enough talking about auto layout because I wasn't as you know deep into it as I was with smart layout. But I have been using auto layout a lot recently. And so now I feel comfortable making some observations and uh, having some opinions here. <laughs> so Figma auto layout. All right, let's talk about some pros. First off, it, it shares with smart layout that you can edit things in place. Very nice. Love it. Thank you. And unlike Sketch, it doesn't need to be a component. So some terminology here. A symbol in Sketch is the same thing as a component or a master component in Figma. Yeah, so you can add auto layout to a frame, right? The frame doesn't itself have to be a component. It can just be a frame. Yeah, you, you don't need anything to be a component. You can just say, I want this particular frame to be horizontal or vertical, and I don't need to canonize it by making it a, a component, which is really nice because I can add and remove things on the fly without messing up my master component structure. Again, like Smart Layout, it wraps lines on text, which is one of the biggest use cases for this. And you can show and hide any sub-object regardless of whether it's a component or not. So any layer within that component can be shown or hidden, and it will reflow uh, based on what's shown and hidden. So that's the pros. Let's go on to some cons, Brian. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my cons list is a little bit longer on auto layout. For one, and probably the biggest one or the biggest two are auto layout is mutually exclusive from constraints. <sighs> this, is, this is the one. This is like the yeah. con, right? Yeah, this is, and I feel like this is a, or I should say, I hope this is a bug. I hope this is like a thing that they haven't done yet. I have seen them tweet that they're working on this. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they have to. Yeah. Like, this is a fundamental point where the the feature doesn't work, right? Like, yep. it's halfway done. Uh, it works in like, maybe like 90% of, of use cases, right? The vast majority <laughs> I would, of... I would argue far far less okay like maybe 30 percent 30 in my experience okay yeah well i should say it it works really well on simple layouts as soon as you start to get more complicated with multiple things that are laying out both vertically and horizontally and working in conjunction with one another that's when it starts to break down and it becomes really difficult to deal with especially early on because you're like what am i doing wrong why isn't this working it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's just not doing everything I want it to do, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, so it's mutually exclusive with constraints. Agreed, huge con. And But I hope that will get fixed. And because of that, when you lay out a component that has a lot of resizable text fields, um, those text fields don't resize. So if you make want to make it wider, it will disregard the width that you've set on the instance and just keep whatever was in the master component width, which is... Uh, yeah, the downfall here. This, this, by the way, is why I've used auto layout like twice. Because the when I want to use it, the ability to resize things within it is such a breakage that basically my workflow right now is like I add auto layout and then I want to use it in a slightly different way. So I have to go through and remove auto layout from everything, resize all of the frames, and then go back through and re-add auto layout. That's like a normal workflow for me is adding and removing auto layout from a frame just to resize a thing. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing that I just thought of that isn't on my list, but the way you might lay things out without auto layout is not necessarily the same way that you would construct those same objects if you were to do it using auto layout. So sometimes when I first started out, I would, I would build something without any sort of auto layout. And then I'd be like, okay, I'll just start applying this after the fact. And it would 
fuck up all my alignment and everything would get mm-hmm. messed up and I'd have to kind of re reconstruct it from scratch. And that can really throw you off early on until you until you can predict the behavior that's going to occur, you know. So here's another here's another con, but also maybe a pro. Um, because it shows you every sub object that is uh, available to be resized, especially in a component, you end up with a messier layer list. And this is maybe more of just like a general Figma versus Sketch complaint slash pro slash con. I don't know. I haven't decided if this is a good or bad thing. It's greater transparency, but it makes your layer list a lot more full and messy, even even when you have stuff in there that you don't want to show half the time, right? Like a divider line in a component or something like that. It's always going to be there. Maybe this is more of a component complaint. But one of the, the biggest things that, and this is why I said the 90% earlier, is that Auto layout allows you to have symmetrical padding and spacing, right? So most times when you lay something out, you just don't want to have to think about what all the the distances between the sub-objects are. You just want it to be like, okay, all of these things are eight points apart, right? And I always want, you know, 16 points on the top and bottom and on the left and right, which is great until you run into a situation where you need it to be asymmetrical, where you want a different padding on the right side than on the left or a top and bottom, and you end up having to add padding objects that are like unfilled squares right unfilled rectangles that will take up that extra space which is i feel hacky at the moment yeah like even i put i have a lot of like spacing layers which is basically like for anyone who is writing css and html in the mid 2000s it's like a spacer gif it's like i just need an invisible layer that's four points wide to fill up some space because I can't offset this symmetrical control over internal spacing or, or the grid gap, more or less. Yeah, I want my left side to be 16 points, but I want my right side p- padding to be 12 points. Uh, so I'll set both to be 12 and then add an extra four-point <laughs> spacer on the left. But then now it messes up your interior spacing, so you have to do all this. like. So you have to add a new frame. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which gets to your point of like having a messier layer list, right? Is like... You have to do a lot of internal nesting of things to get things to behave the way you want. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, anything that is to be laid out needs to be framed. And that might add unnecessary additional structure to your components that is purely there for the layout and would otherwise be useless. Uh, So, yeah, there's a lot of complexity that's added. Okay, so some some quick takeaways here from auto layout. I think it's efficient for most use cases, especially simple layouts, and it, it does the right thing, as Brian says, thirty percent of the time. Uh, <laughs> it's also it's a completely different mental model from the constraints that you've grown used to of like you know snap to the left and stay in the center, all that stuff. Like because they're mutually exclusive at the moment you have to learn a whole new process as opposed to with Sketch, it kind of builds on the existing process you're already familiar with. And lastly, for auto layout, it's impossible today to do certain lockups, which means if you're building a component library like I am right now, (laughs) you have to hope that the future will change and set things up in such a way that when that resizability does become an option, you can easily transition from your current component structure to the new component structure so that nothing breaks. Because in the meantime, there's other people who are going to be using those components and you don't want to fuck up their mocks when you change the master. Yeah, yeah. So what would I, what do I like 
of these two things, like if I were to combine them into uh, an amalgamation of my perfect auto smart layout feature, they would have these aspects. Text that is editable in place, text that wraps lines, and sub-objects that respect resizing of their parent objects, and uh, sub-objects that change their parent sizing when they are shown or hidden, an inferred padding and spacing model that isn't explicit. It, it uses however I lay out those sub-objects. And lastly, they don't need to be canonized as components or symbols. They can just be a, a standalone group that is a one-off on itself. Yeah. That's a good list. I, I feel like one thing I would add to that is there's no ability, I don't know about Sketch, but in Figma, there's no ability to do Z-index stacking. Yeah. Or you, if you want to do that, you have to get really fucking hacky with the way you structure your components. Like, if you want a background layer to be offset by a certain amount, where it's like offset behind some text, you're going to have to get really weird if you want that to work and then have the text have a, a auto layout applied to it. Um, so there's no concept of a, a Z stack, to use the Swift UI term. Yeah, the only the only concept of Z stack that you have is backgrounds of the frames themselves, right? Yeah, which is not really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just makes it really hacky. You have to think laterally about how you're laying things out, which is not how it should work. It should be very obvious and straightforward. And yeah, making frame backgrounds stand in for say like a button background, like a button shape is the frame itself. It, it simplifies things, but as far as like the layer structure goes, but it makes the mental model a lot more difficult because imagine something like a, a top tab in Android where you have a horizontally resizing text string that also has, if it's selected, has an indicator line along the bottom that sticks to the bottom that could be there or could not be there. That's basically impossible to build in Figma. Yep. This is exactly the use case that I was working on this last week where you have to get hacky with like box shadows and like you're not using the correct element to, to, to show that indicator, right? Like if you're hacking an inset box shadow in certain conditions, because like you can't use a border because a border takes up space. So it will offset everything by however wide the border is. It's like just frustrating things like that. It's it's like you, we're missing in CSS land, we're missing Z index, we're missing absolute position, right? Like I want things to escape the relative positioning. If we're if we're say like auto layout is sort of like relatively positioned things, mm -hmm. uh, we are, we're missing the escape hatch, which is that I can absolutely position something within a relatively positioned parent container. Yep. Let me ignore. And and the thing about auto layout is, uh, this is another comment I forgot to mention, is if you want something to be resizable and it's nested inside of something else, you have to make that parent also resizable. Otherwise, it won't propagate up. Yeah. I I love Figma and I send them lots of feedback and I, you know, I use it like n nothing's going to change. But I feel like I haven't been able to really use auto layout in, in the way that I think they're hoping people will use it. I find that my workflow today with auto layout is basically just a 30 minute head bash of <laughs> try and guess and try again. Yeah. Apply auto layout, remove it, resize, apply it again. I've gotten to the point where I've made complex layouts. Like I don't think it's a matter of understanding the principles of the tool. It's just that the principles conflict with basically every mental model of how something should actually be implemented, mm -hmm. uh, which maybe is a good segue into like the implementation of things. But yeah, 
Yeah, the, the mental model is just so disparate from like the way interfaces get built that I find it to just be really hard to use. Even if, yeah, I've hacked my way to some pretty cool auto layout things that make my life easier. But basically it's like, if I wanna design a list, that's the only time that it's even feasible to think about using this. Like, cool, you're gonna have a list of varying length text, go ahead, use auto layout. Anything more complex than that, you're kind of fucked. Like, it's just not there. And and one of the use cases that I find it very valuable for is flows, right? Being able to have an object that contains a bunch of mocks that are in kind of an ordered list that I can move around as necessary and add things to, and it all grows and shrinks nicely. Like I've, I've got a really nice flow lockup that I've, I've created. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I don't, I, I'm not trying to shit on these companies. Like, you know, it's all a work in progress, but there are definitely shortcomings on, on both sides. And as with all things Figma and Sketch, they'll meet in the middle eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm maybe being unduly harsh because these things are hard. They're, Auto layouts in V1, it will get better. Yep. But maybe we can segue into just some implementation details because I feel like as good as auto layout and smart layout will get, the way that we're starting, like the first principles of how they're building these things are disconnected from the way that products get built. Well, tell me about it, Brian. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's talk about implementation. I'm just going to be focusing on CSS and Swift UI. Obviously, there's a bunch of other user interface frameworks yeah. like I'm not going to talk about Android development I'm not going to talk about uh, like Kotlin is really powerful I've gotten to play with it uh, at GitHub on the the mobile apps we're building and like it uses an XML structure for like constructing frameworks it's super declarative it's like wow it's pretty interesting and I feel like you could spend a lot of time talking about the trade-offs there but there's just too many tools so in the same way that you focus on sketch and figma I'm going to talk about CSS and Swift UI which is a pretty early tool, but I think is doing some really interesting shit that we could learn from. All right, hit me. Uh, just as a small teaser, I have started writing a blog post, and let me let me read you the title. Uh, the title is called Swift UI, React, and the Future of Design Tools. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> so clickbaity. <laughs> so clickbaity. <laughs> so anyways, that's what I want to talk about, because I think it's, it's a very interesting paradigm. All right, so let's talk about CSS. So... I'll follow the same framework that you did, which is like, let's list out some pros, cons, and some takeaways, and then I'll jump over to SwiftUI. So pros of CSS is, it is ridiculously flexible, right? CSS lets you do basically whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Like we've gotten to the point that the, the language is mature enough and has built enough tools and there are enough frameworks and documentation and tutorials. Like you can do whatever you want. And a huge reason for that is because of the cascade the C in CSS. Uh, uh, this basically lets you extend and combine styling in a billion creative ways. A quick point too is uh, you mentioned maturity. The two products that I referred to have existed for months. How long has CSS existed for, Brian? Over 20 years, right? Like yeah. it was made in the 90s. Yeah. So, you know, time is time is a factor here Yeah, uh, to build something out and be fully featured. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about why that time that the maturity of it is also a con, interestingly. But okay, so it's really flexible. And one of the reasons that it's flexible is there's a lot of different ways to do the same thing. And so you could imagine um, we went from tables to floats to flexbox to grid. And all of these things were designed to solve this problem of how do we put things next to each other? 
Like literally that was the problem because when HTML and CSS first started, it was to style documents. Documents are vertical by nature. It is text flowing from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. And we always had this problem of, okay, well, how do we put two things next to each other? How do I center something in the page? Like, you know? Yeah, yeah. So over 20, like 20 years later, we have Grid and it's super easy uh, because websites have gotten more complex and we're building apps in the browser. Um, but because of that, yeah, there's many ways to do the same thing. So you can put creativity to work. You can look at different patterns and, and APIs within CSS to solve the same problem. I think interestingly as well, like CSS, it lets you target different kinds of things. So not only can you use different patterns like tables or Flexbox or Grid, but you can also combine like um, I'm going to target selectors. I'm going to target elements. I'm going to target classes. I'm going to target mm -hmm. data attributes. I'm going to use pseudo elements, all of these different kinds of things at your disposal to, to accomplish interesting stylistic outcomes. Okay. Yeah. So just to add on, like what we were talking about, this is old, it's mature, but I feel like CSS has finally gotten to the point that it's like actually powerful and useful basically in 2018. Like in 2018, we started seeing the spec for CSS Grid uh, shipped to all major browsers last year. And now we have Grid at our disposal. And Grid is a way to lay out things vertically and horizontally and define the areas that different types of content should take up. That's basically it. But that tool and the API took a really, really long time to get here. So a pro for me in CSS is like using CSS in 2020 is a pro. It's gotten better. Uh, additionally, we have more access to tools like variables, and we're getting more and more access to the user's system settings, like uh, prefers reduced motion, lets you know if the user has told their operating system that they might get motion sick with excessive animations, so you can mm. do different things. Uh, prefers color scheme is, is new, so like dark mode is kind of table stakes now, and CSS yep. has an, a, a tool to read the user's preferred color scheme. So... It's getting better. <laughs> um, yeah. I would say that another pro of the of CSS is just the community built around the spec. Like the documentation, the number of tutorials, the number example of examples, and uh, honestly, just the accessibility of being able to learn CSS. I think there's probably untold a number of people who got interested in design or development by right-clicking something on a web page and clicking view source or inspect element. I'm raising my hand right now. Yeah, <laughs> right? Like the ability to just dig in with a click and see what's going on and play with it and watch that play re-render in real time, that's really powerful. And that doesn't exist in mobile apps, right? Like you can't right-click on an iPhone app and say, ooh, how did they do that? Uh, it's just not possible. The, the, yeah, the entire code is hidden. That's what's beautiful about the web is... You like something that somebody did? Just right-click, inspect, see how they did it. Yeah. Do you think that'll ever change? It's already changing, yeah. Oh, okay. We have a lot of code gen happening that is minifying and, like, randomizing things. Like, one powerful pattern that exists on the web is the ability to just target different class names and mm -hmm. apply styles to those class names. Mm -hmm. But a lot of modern CSS frameworks, especially in JavaScript land, are now auto-generating randomized and unconflicting class names, which means that every time the website gets built and deployed, those class names will change. So that's really hurting the market for Chrome extensions that modified the behavior of a web page um, based on class selectors. So that is changing, which kind of sucks. Yeah. 
Okay, so some cons. Let's talk about why CSS is not great. Okay. Um, because the spec is so old and so many things have been built up over time and there are many ways to do the exact same thing, it takes a massive amount of historical and just institutional and experiential knowledge to know how the thing works. Mm-hmm. To know not only all the element types, but how elements should be semantic and how they should be nested how those elements interface with SEO. Like, how am I constructing a page so that it can be read well by robots and computers? Mm-hmm. Area labels for for accessibility is an add-on. That's kind of in HTML land, but I'm going to call it like part of the same universe. Like, you need to know about uh, accessibility is basically a different layer on top of HTML and CSS. So that screen readers have access to certain things that they might not otherwise, depending on how you laid out. Exactly right. Like, how does tabbing through a page work? Like you, you have to learn about all these things. It just takes a lot of time. Um, different browser implementations, the quirks of browsers. This has gotten better. Used to be way worse, right? Like, way worse. Oh my God, IE6. Yeah, that was a thing that maybe some people listening will never have had to experience and they should be thankful for that. But like we used to live in a world where you would have all sorts of crazy hacks to do the same thing on each different browser. Yep. Yeah, you have you have your core set of rules, but then you have to add additional rules per browser so that everything looks the same at the end. Exactly. I would add in, you know, just the way specificity works. Like CSS is a language where specificity defines the final outcome and different things have different specificity scores and it's just complicated. And especially when you get into uh, a world where people are styling elements based on the element type, the class name, data attributes. They're writing CSS in multiple files. They have large teams writing different parts of CSS, touching different parts of the app, like understanding the way a final output thing will be rendered is actually pretty complex and hard to, to reason about, or it can be. Yeah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come from foundational things built into CSS, plus all the stuff you've defined in multiple different files that all talk to each other and affect each other. Yeah, man. Yeah. Because of the first pro I read for CSS, which is, it is incredibly flexible. You can do anything. I think that's also a con. Hmm. Because you can do anything, you can do lots of bad things, right? Like, there's not <laughs> really a sense of a smart default or an accessible default, like you have to do the extra work to make things accessible, right? Yeah. You don't really get accessibility built in unless you have a lot of built up foundational knowledge around semantics and, and keyboard interaction and things like that. Yeah. Also, like just when we're talking about contrast and type size and alt tags for images and things like that, like you have to do all of that as a developer. There's no smart default for a lot of these things. And I think that's why the web is exciting. It is creative. People are doing cool things. But a a large portion of the web is unusable. I think (laughs) we can safely say that, right? Yeah, it's unfortunate. I think one of the cons of CSS, this is more applying to you and me, Marshall, maybe not to all types of designers, but I think it is a document-first, app-second type language. Mm. I think CSS wasn't really built in a world where we expected it to be used for web apps that are interactive and have lots of animation and should behave in a different way with state and like transitions and event handlers. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think it was really designed to know where it was going to go. So it was designed for 
documents, and then we sort of hacked it to style apps. And that's introduced a lot of complexity. And I think some of the, the problems with that you can see are just like the language of CSS itself. So for example, we use words like left and right instead of words like leading and trailing, which I think... What's, uh, what's, what's the reasoning for that, Brian? Why would that matter? Yeah, so there's like a whole chunk of the world that reads from right to left. Oh, weird. <laughs> it's so weird, yeah. So we have things like padding left, margin left, text align left, and it makes it really hard to build accessible right to left support because you can't like left is static but words like leading and trailing are dynamic mm -hmm. leading can be either left or right depending on if you're right to left language or not yep it's left and left to right and it's right and right to left yeah you just have to get hacky with it right like go read tutorials on how to make a website rtl accessible and it literally is just going through and adding a bunch of media queries uh, to detect right to left language and then flipping the word right and left it's pretty bad and hacky yeah not good i would say that by default a problem with css is again pro and con is the box model lets you create like semi-responsive things by default like it's really hard to make a responsive thing by default um, you have to put in the extra work to add media queries, to add the way grid should reflow at different screen sizes. Mm -hmm. The web can appear on an infinite number of screens, an infinite number of devices. And so you have to account for all of that. And building support for all that is just really hard. And a lot of people, because it's really hard, a lot of people skip it. And so you have a lot of websites that just break or suck on different types of interfaces or screens. Uh, the last con I have here is just around the way we write CSS. So I think it's really hard for this language to scale in an organization. That doesn't mean it's not possible. It just means that it's harder. I think it's telling that we've had to build extensions of the language that get compiled back to the language. So tools like less and SAS, uh, CSS modules. We have, we went through this whole phase where we had build pipelines so that we could write CSS the way we wanted to write it, uh -huh, and then uh -huh. it would get compiled to like actual CSS, and uh -huh. the compiled thing wasn't always super readable, or it would do a lot of like weird formatting. So like the fact that that even exists says that maybe some of the tooling is not that great. We've also gotten to the point where, like, especially in JavaScript web application land, we're using tools that break kind of the point of CSS. So we're using tools like styled components or CSS modules. We're using frameworks, um, some that come to mind would be like Bootstrap or Tailwind CSS, where these tools are constructing CSS in a way that isolates components, isolates modules, reduces the impact of the cascade. If you look at frameworks like Bootstrap and CSS, like the point of those things is to make something good look good by default. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we have to have these massive frameworks or something to even look good by default, I think says that the, the like underlying thing itself is not that great or maybe it was just built too generically it was built too generically and without opinion because and again this is a, a pro right you can do anything with it but that means you have to have taste and a lot of skill to do something well with it yep anything you'd add on there i know you know you know html and css and stuff like that uh, yeah I th I, i'm maybe not the best person to ask about that though because <laughs> my experience is from years ago at this point okay yeah, that that's fine. I mean, I probably am missing things. Like, again, it's a twenty-year-old, twenty-plus-year-old language. There's a lot of pros and cons. I've been working with CSS for I don't know thirteen years, so oh man, I feel like I have 
some history and context, but I'm missing obviously anything older than that. So, okay, let's talk about SwiftUI because I think SwiftUI is this interesting thing that is brand new. It's mm-hmm. beta. Uh, it's unfinished. Yeah. Yet, I think it reflects like this. It's the antithesis of CSS. <laughs> so, I'll start with some pros. Uh, SwiftUI is an incredibly simple set of primitives for building interfaces. There's an H stack, a V stack, a Z stack. There is text, images, colors, shapes, and then there's spacers. Yep. There's like a couple other things. That's basically it. You have like 10 things that you can kind of move around and restructure in different ways to create the interface that you want to make. Mm-hmm. That's about all you need though, right? Exactly. Yeah. They've like really distilled it down. Uh, we'll get into why that's a con later, but I think that this simple set of primitives is the result of a framework that's incredibly opinionated. Yep. It provides this very opinionated list of default things, but the default things are built in such a way that they consider accessibility, device sizes, dark mode, RTL, like all of these things are baked into that opinionated set of defaults. Mm-hmm. For developers, this means that you just don't have to think about as much stuff. Like when you're writing a web page with HTML and CSS, you are considering every device size, right to left, dark mode, light mode. And when you're when you're writing just a basic Swift UI view, you don't really have to worry about that. You can just assume that the framework is handling all these things for you. Yep. Or if you're having to put in incrementally more work to consider things like right to left. But for the most part, it kind of just does it because it uses words like leading and trailing instead of left and right. Like it mm-hmm. forces you into this world of, of accounting for those things by default. Yep. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that CSS was kind of a documents first, apps second type world just because apps came later. Mm-hmm. Swift UI is the opposite, right? It is built specifically with the purpose of creating interactive applications. For iOS specifically. For <laughs> iOS specifically, yeah. So at its core, it cares deeply about things like interactivity. It cares about animations and high frame rates. It cares about state and the way that changes of state should re-render a view. Like this thing is built into the framework in a way that it's just not in HTML and CSS land. Mm-hmm. Because of this, it has a layout engine that cares about the way we think about text or layout in an application environment. So you could imagine you want two pieces of text stacked side by side. What happens if, if one piece of text is too long? It should truncate, right? Mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to do that in CSS. Like you have to get a little bit hacky to say this thing should always render all of its text. This other thing should collapse and truncate to fill up the remaining space. Yeah. And that gets really complicated if it's more than one line, right? Yeah. CSS doesn't have great line capping. Yeah. yeah I want you to line cap it too and put an ellipsis at the end of the second line. Ugh, how do I do that? Yeah. It's much easier in Swift UI. So they have uh, the ability to just add a line cap You can really easily define the alignment of things. You can really easily define what should truncate and in what order. So they have this feature called layout priority where you could say that this element should always try to render its entire contents and all other elements have a different priority where they can be truncated. So that's really cool. That's like built into the thing, which is how we want our apps to work. Yeah. And then the next pro on my list is the tooling. It's early. It's kind of, it's got some quirks. It's a little slow. But for the most part, it's really fantastic to use because it has direct manipulation of both the code and the rendered output of that code. So this is kind of what my blog post is about. 
but it's really exciting that you can hover over a, a preview of a component that you're designing and it will show you the text that is responsible for rendering what you're hovering over. Or conversely, you can hover over the text and it'll put a blue outline around the thing that that piece of code renders. That tooling is fantastic. I think it's the future. Mm -hmm. What's also really exciting is uh, in Swift UI, you have these things called modifiers, which let you apply different behaviors or properties to one of these given primitives. So uh, let's say you wanted to have uh, a stack of elements and apply some padding between them. What you can do is you can open an interface to search through a list of modifiers. You could search for padding and you can drag that padding modifier onto the code or you could drag that padding modifier onto the preview and it'll just automatically apply. It's like this direct manipulation going in both ways from code to the preview is really fantastic. Uh, the last pro that I was going to say, this is a pro for iOS people, is like when you're writing Swift UI, you can make some pretty reasonable assumptions about where and how this interface is going to get rendered. You just don't have that when you're writing HTML and CSS. For all you know, your website's going to be rendered on a watch. It's going to be rendered on a refrigerator. <laughs> it's going to be rendered on a touchscreen or a mouse device. Like it could show up anywhere. So you have to count for all situations. When you're writing Swift uh, or Swift UI, the set of places it could be rendered is growing, but it's still relatively small, right? It's like watch, TV, phone, iPad, maybe a Mac. Like that's about it. Finite. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about cons because, uh, you know, I feel like we get the same disclaimer here. It's new in the same way that Figma auto layout's new, Swift UI is new. So there's some stuff that's missing that will come soon. But I'll say that. The first thing off the bat is Swift UI, because it is so opinionated, is really confusing about why those opinions exist. And I'll give you an example. So imagine that you have an H stack, which aligns elements horizontally. And within that H stack, you put two text layers, right? Mm -hmm. If you're writing HTML or CSS or you're using Figma, what that H stack would do is bump those two text children so that they're touching each other in the middle, right? Mm hmm it assumes zero space between the internal elements of that stack. But in SwiftUI land, uh, they have this feature called adaptive padding, which by default applies a little bit of spacing between these two text elements. And the way they describe this in Apple is like, we're doing a bunch of calculation to make your application conform to the HIG by default. So that if your app is running on an iPad, it might get a little bit of a different padding treatment than if it's running on a phone, just because of the nature of the different screen sizes and, and the way people interact with different sizes of screens. Mm -hmm. So the opinion is great, but it is a little bit weird to have the opinion just like made on your behalf when it's not necessarily intuitive that that padding should exist between the two elements because you never said that there should be. So it's doing things that you haven't told the computer to do. And you might assume that the way you're previewing this is how it will appear everywhere. And unless you preview it everywhere, you won't know for sure. Yes. Which brings me to my next con, which is that it's really hard to know how a layout's going to work in the future if uh, two things happen. One, if the spec ever changes, right? Like it's making decisions for you about what that default padding should be. And that could change in the future, right? Yep. If Swift UI changes the default, your app will change as well. That's kind of scary. Uh, and then the second is because it's really hard to preview on every type of device, on every type of accessibility setting, you might not always know how your interface is going to be rendered on some end user's device, right? Like there might be some iPad size with 
accessibility setting X that's in portrait mode with the text scaling set to maximum where your thing kind of just doesn't really work the way you'd expect it to work. Don't know that that's any worse than CSS where like a web page could be rendered in any sort of weird way, but something to consider. Mm -hmm. The next thing that I found to be, I'm putting this under cons mostly just because it's confusing, but I think once you understand it, it makes sense, is that you have to read Swift UI from bottom to top when you're talking about modifiers. Oh, this is how Figma works with auto layout too. It, like when I order layers in the layer list, if something is above something else, then I will put it above it in the layer list, right? It, it reads from top to bottom the same way it visually reads from top to bottom. But as soon as you auto layout something, it flips it and does it from bottom to top. Same thing with left to right. The thing that's rightmost is topmost instead of bottommost, which is backwards to me. I wish there was a checkbox I could flip that's like, make it the opposite, please. Yeah, it's just confusing. It's one of those things that once you know how it works, you can like remap your mental model a little bit. Well, and the reason it works this way is because this is how things are rendered. A thing that is rendered later will be rendered above, like in the Z order, Z index above something else. So they, they take that assumption and propagate it to vertical and horizontals alignment as well yeah which doesn't match to the way i want to lay stuff out yeah so you have to re rework your mental model in, in swift ui and, and using auto layout i think that like okay perfect example here is imagine you have a text layer and you want to apply some padding around that text and then a background color to to that text in css you can just say this text should have a background and some padding and it doesn't matter what order you write background or padding right properties are arbitrary they all get applied at the same time exactly well, kind of, besides the cascade. But assuming we only have this one point where the style is defined. But in SwiftUI, modifiers are actually creating views that nest from bottom to top. So it does matter if you put the padding before or after the background. Mm -hmm. In one scenario, you'll end up, like let's say you put the, the padding as the last modifier. It will create a view that has padding, and then within the center of that view, it will create a text layer, and only the text will have a background. Mm -hmm. But if you have the order of modifiers where it goes padding and then background, it will first apply a background color layer, and within that background, it will apply padding. So you actually end up with more space around the text that has a colored background. Mm -hmm. So this is just one of those things that you learn. You have to like learn the mental model, but reading from bottom to top is a little bit strange because... <laughs> It's not how, it's not the order in which you're applying them or writing them, right? Which feels counterintuitive. Yep. Okay, here's my final con. I think that for all of the benefits of having opinionated defaults, Swift UI also has an opinion about what a thing should look like. Again, this can be a good thing because it means that we get opinions about how a thing should look in right to left, in dark mode, with large text accessibility settings. But the downside is we're going to end up with more and more apps that look and feel basically the same. We're going to conform to the HIG. Apps might be less unique. They might feel visually similar. We might enter a world where it's really hard to discern the difference between two apps that are both built using SwiftUI. Or at the very least, people will have to spend a lot more effort to make their app visually distinct. So this is just a trade-off. Like the web is beautiful because you can do anything. You can be so creative and create really compelling web pages. It just takes a shit ton of work to do it. Mm -hmm. Swift UI, you can create really powerful apps with not a lot of work. 
but it's going to look the same as everybody else's app. So it's you just got to choose your poison there. And I think that might be intentional. I think that probably is intentional from Apple's standpoint. Is like, if you do nothing else, you'll fit in with the rest of the OS. You'll look like settings. You'll look like messages, right? Uh, if you want to do something fancy, then you can go ahead and do that on top of it. But by default, anyone who can use the native you know, bundled apps that come with the phone, they will have full knowledge of exactly how your app should look and work because it's using Apple's defaults, not your own. I think the problem with that argument, it, it's a good argument. I understand why Apple's doing it, but it does lead us to a world where we're conforming to the lowest common denominator. Like we're saying, we want the person who does the least amount of work to be our target user, right? Who cares the least about a way a thing should look and feel? We're going to build for them. Instead of perhaps in CSS land, like the APIs and spec for CSS are so complex and powerful. They're actually kind of designed for like the power user, the person who knows the most. Like the person who knows the most will create the most beautiful apps, Whereas in, in Swift UI, like you literally don't have to know anything about design and it'll look fine. It'll be pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's a good thing and a bad thing simultaneously, I think. We'll see how it sort of plays out as Swift. Like nobody's building production apps in Swift UI right now. Uh, I would be surprised, at least at a large established company. But in, in the next few years, that's going to change. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. And my guess is that Apple's concern is more with the users than the, than the developers, right? This is accommodating for the user experience being consistent rather than the developer experience being everything that that you'd want it to be because they care. They got a lot more users than they have developers. And I think they probably are okay with telling the developer to do a little bit of extra work to make it custom. Yeah. Uh, Especially when they have such huge outreach projects for you know, kids getting into development and learning code early on, you don't want to hit them with all that complexity immediately. Like if you can just throw them a Swift UI playground and they can do whatever they want to and it'll basically do the right thing most of the time, that's a far lower uh, barrier to entry than it is for any other coding platform. Good point. Yeah, if I had to guess, it seems like Apple's priorities First would be Apple, it's like <laughs> sure. what's best for the company and and the bottom line. The second would be customers, right? It's like how mm-hmm. do we make things private, fast, secure, usable, accessible. Mm-hmm. And then third, maybe developers. And mm-hmm. then fourth would be like um, third parties. <laughs> third parties, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, whew, that's a lot of pros and cons. All right, here's my here's my takeaway. So you had your takeaways. I don't know that I have like an ideal thing here, but I. What stood out to me is that I feel like I think that whatever language or framework you learn first is going to have an outsized impact on your mental model of the way things work, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you learn CSS first, the box model is embedded so deeply in your brain that it's really strange to escape from that when you move to Swift UI. You're like, why can't I reflow things in this way? Oh, I have to like reconstruct everything in this H stack. Uh, v stack world it's just a little bit of a different mental model it's not hard to switch between but i just think that whatever you learn first for me like i'm stuck like css is just so deeply embedded in my brain that i have a hard time escaping from that which is part of why i think auto layout is a frustrating tool for me Mm -hmm. the the second takeaway for me is regardless of which way you go there's just so much institutional knowledge that you have to have or experiential knowledge of using either css or swift ui to build something good. Like SwiftUI helps you make simple things fairly easily, but then you're going to have to kind of 
escape out and know about how interactivity works, how state works, how to make your app work on all different screen sizes. Then you're working your way up into Swift land. And then even just learning Xcode is is a really challenging tool to, to sort of embed yourself in. So either way you go, it's going to be a lot of learning. Swift, you get more for free. The next takeaway for me was that while CSS historically has been pretty frustrating, I think we're entering a new age where it's going to be a lot less frustrating for newcomers. I think for people who are just learning it today, the tools like Grid and Flexbox, they're working on a, a Grid Part 2 spec, which will include a feature called Subgrid. Like Some of these things are going to make the framework just so much more useful for building complex and interesting layouts. Mm -hmm. So it's a really exciting time. We also have really cool frameworks like, I mean, even just Bootstrap, uh, Tailwind CSS, the React ecosystem, and, and CSS and JavaScript tooling like styled components. All of these kinds of things have made it way easier to build composable, scalable interfaces for the web. So I'm excited about the current state of CSS. I think we're in a good place. And we can see like some clear steps forward for how it's just going to keep getting better as the spec matures. Mm -hmm. All right, here's my final takeaway, Marshall. I am really frustrated that the mental models for tools like CSS and Swift UI are for the most part incompatible with design tools. Yeah. Like Figma and Sketch, they're solving a different step towards the same eventual goal. Mm -hmm. Just like we want to build an application or a website, but their tooling is designed for much earlier in the process, obviously, than, than implementation. And because of that, I just find this process of moving from one to the other to be really cumbersome. It requires the whole topic of our last episode, which is developer handoff. Mm -hmm. Like that being a stage, I think says a lot about just the incompatibility of the mental models and the tools. I think especially when we talk about just like prototyping, text truncation, line capping, animations, like none of these things are compatible between the two sets of tools. And I've talked about in the past that I think it's okay that Figma is for fast idea generation. I love this open canvas of just quickly getting shit out of my brain onto a screen. But ultimately, I do find it frustrating that when those ideas have any amount of complexity, like screens that should be composed and reflow with changing content or have some idea of state, uh, things just break from how they'll ultimately work. And so, mm -hmm. I don't know, man. Yeah. Uh, do you mind if I add one one extra little topic thing? Yeah. So when you're talking about Swift UI, you mentioned the different primitives that are available to you. And one of those primitives is Spacer which I think is probably the biggest innovation when it comes to how Swift UI works. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, I'm so glad you mentioned this because I actually meant to bring it up. I think, well, I did mention earlier, like if you wrote CSS in the mid-2000s, like you probably used a, a thing called a spacer.gif, right? Which is mm -hmm. you would create an image asset and then set that image's width to be however much extra spacing you needed. Yeah, you just have a one point, one point by one point GIF yeah. that you resize however you want to. So it doesn't take up a whole lot of kilobytes, but uh, it can be whatever you want it to be. Yeah, so that was a thing. And now we see that sort of re-emerging in SwiftUI as this primitive called Spacer. Took me two seconds to figure out like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. You want some text to be left aligned to the screen, you do the text and then add a spacer next to it. 
and then it'll yep. automatically push the text to the left and then fill the remaining space with that spacer. And if you add something after the spacer, then it will shrink to account for that available space. So if you want a left-aligned text and a right-aligned text, you just do text, spacer, text, and they'll snap to the edges. It'll push them as far as it can, which is really, really nice. What I do find really beautiful is how, if you just take those four primitives of H-stack, V-stack, Z-stack, and spacer, you can build some pretty complex layouts with just those things. Oh, yeah. Just by nesting different components at different layers, you can design a lot of things. And it makes you sort of look at CSS and the spec for grid and the spec for Flexbox. Those specs are fucking hard. Like, they are confusing. If you're designing for a Flexbox layout, like, I guarantee you have that CSS tricks, like, Flexbox spec explanation open. <laughs> You just have to have this documentation to remember, like, the terminology for which access you're moving along, like, justify justify content, justify items. Like, which one is it? Oh, my God, I don't know. But, yeah, Swift has somehow distilled that into just these four things that kind of cover most app design mm-hmm. layouts. I'm sure there's more custom complex things that you're going to struggle with. But for the most part, yeah. But you know what this reminds me of, Marshall, is I feel like I think a lot of people take for granted how much knowledge they accumulate over a long period of time. Mm. Like I think for somebody who's been writing CSS for 15, 20 years, someone who's been uh, like using Figma since day one, I think we take for granted just how many things there are to learn about how the tools work, mm-hmm. what the APIs are for these different things, the evolution of it, like knowing, oh, they built this and then they built this and then they corrected it with this thing. Like knowing that history just takes time. And I think if I was just getting started today, I could imagine it being incredibly intimidating to look at any one of these tools. Like we just listed four, right? Sketch, Figma, CSS, and SwiftUI. And those are four of hundreds of design tools where each of those design tools has all of this knowledge that you have to build up. Um, And they all have their own opinions. All their own opinions, APIs, naming of things. Like, it's overwhelming. All I can say is, like, that's the name of the game. Like, you have to just build things over and over and over again over a long period of time for this stuff to really get sort of set in stone i think that's probably the same for most professions like you just have to do things a lot to get really good at doing the thing i would also say that it's a huge risk for us like the people who have been building apps for the last 10 years have certain mental models so deeply embedded in their brains that it's going to be really hard for those people to invent the next set of mental models that will be embedded in the future tools. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an opportunity for people who are new to question some of these things like, wow, CSS does this thing that's super unintuitive, but everyone kind of just does it and takes it for granted. Those are really good questions to be asking if you're new to these tools. But also if you're trying to build websites, like you got to know how to do it too. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that was a lot of really heavy detail. Let's let's get into a little bit more fun stuff, Brian. Do you have a cool thing this week? Yeah, let's keep this section tight. This episode's so long. This is going to be a really long episode. Holy shit. Fuck. All right. I have a cool thing this week. I'll keep this one short. This one is called Better. Uh, the URL is better.fyi, and it is a content blocker for Safari on iOS and Mac. Mm. Um, so I, I switched to Safari as my main driver a few months ago. Uh, I love it, but I don't think the extension game is as strong in Safari. Like Chrome extensions are just 
There's way more of them. There's a lot that do more powerful things. Safari seems a little bit more limited. Not as many people want to build extensions for them. But I need an ad blocker. Like I know there's ethical arguments here about whether you should be using ad blockers. But using the web without an ad blocker today straight up sucks. Like web pages are slow. It is hard to find and read content. So yes, I use an ad blocker. And the one that I've chosen for Safari is called Better. And they have this big blacklist of content sources that prevents ads from different places from ever being rendered or served. So websites are faster. You don't see spam and shit like that. And I have it on my Mac. I have it on my phone, iPad. Uh, I think it's like a couple bucks or something. It's like so so cheap that it's a no-brainer if you're using Safari. It makes sense that this is on a computer, but the fact that this works on an iPhone is crazy to me. Yeah, I think this is one of the less known features of Safari on iOS is that they have an entire content blockers setting and you can build apps that are strictly to serve as content blockers uh, for Safari. So Yeah, that's smart. So that's my cool thing. Uh, better, Better.fyi if you use Safari. It's a must, must install. Cool thing, Brian. All right. I got a book this week. Uh, this was recommended to me by my brother. Uh, did, have you ever heard of the story, uh, John Dies at the End? Yeah, that was your cool thing a while ago, right? Yeah, uh, John Dies at the End. Same author, David Wong, that isn't actually his real name, I don't think. That's his uh, pen name, pseudonym. But he wrote another book that uh, my brother recommended to me, and I just finished reading a couple days ago, called Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits. Which, if that title doesn't get you, I don't know it will. That is a very good title. Okay, what's it about? Okay, well, it takes place in a future setting. One of the interesting things about it, and I don't know if I would have realized this as I was reading it, but my brother pointed it out, which is it takes place in the future, and it's kind of a almost cyberpunk type of world, right? But it's only ever mentioned in the margins, right? Like, there'll be a description of the scene, but it, that isn't the main thing. Thing about the story it's just like that's kind of a nice little flavor aspect to it but but it takes place in this cyberpunk kind of world um the premise is a trailer park girl who doesn't have a whole lot of aspirations in life and just kind of hangs out on the couch with her cat gets caught up in this whirlwind situation because her estranged father is a billionaire who she doesn't want to have anything to do with and he just died and uh, left all of his money to her. And all of the people that he surrounded himself with are trying to get that money. And there are bounty hunters trying to kill her. It's it's a really good story. And it's written in that same kind of irreverent style that John Dies at the End is is composed with. So I really enjoyed it. It's, it's a fun little self-contained novel. It doesn't really set itself up for a sequel or anything like that. It's just a fun, goofy, irreverent, doesn't take itself too seriously at all. Like the antagonist is, I imagine like a surfer bro. And I, I listened to it on Audible and- <laughs> Yes, okay. The, the lady who's the narrator, she reads the antagonist lines like, like he's a surfer bro from California and he's kind of an idiot, but also he's like the, the big bad evil guy, right? So uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, it's an interesting combination, twisting tropes, and uh, I never quite knew where it was going to go. It kept me guessing and it was fun throughout. So highly recommended futuristic violence and fancy suits. Cool thing. All right. Well, links in the show notes for both of these. This has been a long episode. Very long. I apologize. Thank you all for listening. If you stuck around till now. 
Yeah, I think our meet, I don't think we expected it to go that long, but somehow we had a lot of stuff to say. I had an inkling. Okay. Well, let us know what you thought. We probably missed stuff, so feel free to tweet at us. Um, tell us what tools and frameworks you're learning. If you found similar confusion points or frustrations with smart layout, auto layout, CSS, Swift UI, other. Let us know. Um, if you are enjoying the show and you enjoyed this episode and want to say thanks, uh, you can support us on Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash design details. For just a buck a month, you get access to a private RSS feed that will have all of this content as well as additional bonus land. Bonus, bonus land. Bonus episodes. Bonus. We'll have those monthly. Uh, we missed January. I've been traveling. I'm sorry, but we're going to catch up. we got some bonus land coming up soon. Yeah, we'll double up in February. And uh, as well as you get sponsor-free episodes. So that's at patreon.com slash design details. If you want more podcasts, if you need more than what you just heard, uh, go to spec.fm. That's our parent podcast network with shows for designers and developers just like you. Uh, other ways to support, I mean, you can leave an iTunes review. Those are always nice. We haven't gotten one in a while, but iTunes reviews tell Apple that you're listening to the show and then they can recommend our podcast to more designers and help us keep growing. So iTunes reviews are awesome. Otherwise, just uh, follow us on Twitter at Design Details FM. Hit us up, send us a DM. You can also ask us a question on our GitHub repo at github.com slash specfm. We have a Design Details repo. Just open an issue, ask us a question, and we'll get to it as soon as we can. Otherwise, uh, that's it. I think this has been a content brain dump. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, if, uh, if you listen to this on your commute, uh, this probably accounted for both your commute to and from work. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, Marshall, let's wrap. All right. See you next week. Bye-bye. If we just jump into the content, maybe, yeah, it's more efficient. There's probably a lot of people who would appreciate that. But it means that the show is entirely one directional. And I don't know that that's as much fun. Can I be Zane? Yeah. You can be Niall. Or do you want to be Harry? Oh, one direction. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we're becoming a boy band. (laughs) A two-man boy band.